0: Should America include new nuclear power in its battle against climate change? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. On today's program, nuclear power, revive it or allow a slow death. Today, about 100 nuclear plants provide 20% of America's electricity. Once touted as a modern power source, nuclear fell out of favor after a series of major accidents, most notably Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. A handful of the plants that once dotted the American landscape have been shuttered because they can't compete with cheaper sources of power. The billions and billions of tons of carbon
1: that we're releasing into the atmosphere now There's no practical way for future generations to ever rectify that problem. And I think that shutting down nuclear plants instead
0: of coal plants is just morally indefensible. Per Peterson is professor of nuclear engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and a co-founder of a nuclear technology company. Later on, we'll hear from other companies working on innovations that could put new nuclear power back on the table. But as Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists cautions, it's important that we make it as secure as possible.
2: Because uh, if the world experienced another Fukushima-like accident, it could seriously damage or further damage the credibility of the technology going forward.
0: Pear Peterson and Edwin Lyman join me now to talk about the health of the nuclear power industry today and its path forward.
1: We've not seen great changes in our technology since the first water-cooled reactors were launched in submarines back in 1954. And the opportunities to do things better do exist. Many of those opportunities do involve working with smaller reactors and also looking
0: towards reactors that move away from water as a coolant costs of nuclear power have been going up, where costs of many other forms of power, solar, wind, uh, renewables, have been going down. So how do you address the cost question? Because the nuclear industry for a long time has said, well, we're gonna next time's going to be better, but they failed to deliver on price and performance. Well, that's a very good point. And again, the puzzle
1: is, why is it that we see these very high costs relative to other technologies? And it's not because of the resource consumption or the materials. Instead, there's a variety of different ways in which current nuclear facilities are inefficient, particularly in terms of of how effectively they use labor. Um, A lot of this comes from dealing with the older technologies, active safety systems, the amount of maintenance that are required, and changing the technology is something that opens up significant opportunities for us to do things in different ways that achieve safety goals and also are more efficient. I would say that the new approaches have tremendous potential. And so what we need to do is look at the kids. And if you look at what's been happening, for example, in nuclear engineering education, over those last two decades, we've had fantastic students coming in. They're young and enthusiastic. And what they're interested in doing is working with a technology that has tremendous potential to address the climate problem. What nuclear does is it gives us the capability to produce heat without burning fossil fuel. And it's the combustion of fossil fuel that's really the problem. In 2014, nuclear energy was 10.5% of world electricity generation which proves that it's a technology that can be scaled, the question is how to improve it so it's also cost competitive and meets all of the other societal requirements that we have for safety, security, safeguards, and reliability.
0: Edwin Lyman, your take on that, is it the question of getting new technology and new generation of workforce into the nuclear industry, or is it something that's, uh, that's kind of dying a slow death?
2: Well, rather than give a health analogy, I would say the industry, to my mind, is, uh, let's say, a public figure that's lost some credibility uh, due to a scandal, um, let's say, the Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan 2011, and is trying to reinvent uh, him or herself. And that's what's really going on now. The industry realizes that uh, the public uh, is skeptical about its claims that it can actually scale up cheaply and quickly enough to make a significant dent in the in the carbon problem, which admittedly is a very serious problem. But um, their approach to that is to show them, uh, the public, they're doing something different. And that's what I think is largely behind this effort to uh, promote new technologies. But in my view, uh, I think uh, our assessment is that um, to develop and commercialize any new nuclear technology is an expensive and a time-consuming proposition. And it's unlikely, even if there were a, a new technology that was clearly uh, safer uh, and um, more secure, more proliferation resistant, generated less waste than the current light water reactor technology, even if such a technology existed, it would still... Uh, be an a, a extremely um, expensive proposition to commercialize it. And it's just not clear that the benefits of that would be uh, justified. So uh, I think um, the, probably the quickest way uh, to expand nuclear technology is to address the shortcomings in light water reactor technology and look for evolutionary improvements. One thing that's
0: happened recently is the Trump administration has rolled back protections under the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, easing up on industry. Edwin Lyman, is the public being protected adequately under the current Nuclear Regulatory Commission?
2: I'm very concerned about the direction of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and its oversight, both of the operating nuclear fleet and also of licensing new reactors. There's tremendous pressure in Congress from uh, industry-funded Interest groups and and the like uh, to uh, accelerate the licensing of advanced reactors by weakening safety and security standards, based on the assertion that all these reactors are necessarily or uh, uh, at at the uh, starting gate. So clearly safe and secure, they don't need to meet the same standards. And in our view, uh, that certainly hasn't been proven for any of these advanced reactor designs. They're still on paper. There are many uncertainties that um, as nuclear technologies develop that you only discover through experiment and analysis. And so until you've um, really closed those gaps, you can't make That kind of a claim. So, we believe that the NRC needs to proceed very cautiously when it's licensing new um, and novel nuclear technologies and make sure that uh, they are comfortable with understanding all the technical aspects of these designs.
0: There's also concern, Per Peterson, about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's oversight of existing operating plants. Uh, they've called for less notice to the public and state governors when problems arise. Is the NRC doing its job as uh, as it should right now?
1: The the NRC, uh, I think that there's an important uh, set of considerations when we think about safety. What we want to do is to incentivize uh, a high safety culture uh, within the industry. An interesting point is that through the 1990s, the reliability of nuclear plants in the United States increased greatly. If you look at the average capacity factor of the fleet in the early 90s, it was down about 65%, and by the end of the decade, it was up above 90%. The major thing that happened that changed that was putting in place effective programs to get people and plants to report problems so that they could get fixed, And systematically addressing those problems in ways that made sure that the important ones didn't reoccur. And that increase in reliability emerged out of that sort of approach. The key thing about doing that is you need to focus on those things which are important to safety. If you're looking at the wrong things then you're not focusing in the right places. And so when the NRC says that it's better to focus in one area than others, generally there's actually a very rigorous basis behind that kind of recommendation because what you want to do in in the end is to focus on those things which are safety significant. Now, the thing that we've not been able to do is to integrate the learning that we've been getting from these operating plants into improving the designs of future plants, And so this is where the next big set of opportunities are. In particular, what we want to do is we want to move away from relying on safety systems that require external uh, sources of power so that we can both shut down reactors and provide uh, long-term cooling through a diverse set of paths that include mechanisms that do not require external sources of power because that was the fundamental problem in the Fukushima accident The licensing process to qualify those systems is highly rigorous in terms of the testing, the model verification, and now that we're starting to use digital twin technology, we're actually using those models, running them in parallel with the systems, comparing the differences that allows you to detect changes at much lower levels of, of, of degradation and therefore to achieve higher levels of reliability. These are, these are all things that we can do as we start to deploy new new reactor technologies. And again, I would say that when you look at how the NRC evaluates license applications and the level of things that you have to do to prove that these systems are safe and reliable and then to monitor them, uh, and assure that they're operating
0: reliably when the plant is running is quite rigorous. Edwin Lyman, the NRC Nuclear Regulatory Commission has also reclassifying nuclear waste to lower costs and achieve faster cleanup. Uh, Jay Inslee, governor of Washington, which has a huge uh, site there, the Hanford nuclear site there, a big cleanup concern of uh, uh, nuclear wastes creeping toward the Columbia River, uh, said it's illegal and cuts out the states. What's your view, J- Edwin Lyman, on reclassifying nuclear waste? Yeah.
2: So um, actually, that uh, that's not a uh, Nuclear Regulatory uh, Commission decision. Um, the Department of Energy, um, the way it classifies High-level nuclear waste um, is—it's uh, a legal definition stemming back to the original uh, 1982 Nuclear Waste Policy Act, and that it's based more on where, how the waste was produced, rather than uh, what it's actually uh, composed of. And um, so, to some extent, I agree with uh, the idea that there should be a, a more technically rooted uh, foundation for classifying and disposing of nuclear waste uh, that that is more closely tied to its actual characteristics rather than where it came from. But in the, the case of what the Department of Energy is proposing to do, um, the reclassification of high-level nuclear waste could have unintended consequences, for instance, by allowing waste that was previously considered high-level that – uh, under the law, would have to be uh, removed, repackaged, and disposed of in a deep geologic repository. And uh, instead of doing that, that change could potentially allow uh, the Department of Energy to leave it where it is. Um, and in uh, uh, shallow facilities that were never designed for long-term containment of that waste. And so those unintended consequences could be dangerous. So um, there has to be uh, extreme caution again in trying to monkey around with these definitions and legal requirements.
0: There's also questions, uh, Edwin Lyman, about uh, incentives to decommission plants quickly and whether companies can, can capture some of the savings from decommissioning. We have an aging nuclear fleet in this country, about 100 nuclear reactors. Most of them, their license have been extended for another, what, decade or two. But at some point, these things will, will uh, wear out. Uh, what about the incentives for decommissioning?
2: This is a growing problem in the United States as reactors age and are shut down have to be decommissioned. Uh, decommissioning is not an income stream for any uh, company, uh, except uh, there are now companies that are trying to turn decommissioning into a profitable business. And that's that's the challenge. These are companies that are buying up uh, shut down plants and their uh, business model is a little hard to understand, but it's part of it is based on the idea that they can actually decommission those plants more quickly and cheaply and therefore obtain some profit from decommissioning funds that are left over. And that obviously invites um, uh, the potential for a sloppy decommissioning work, both uh, uh, risking increased worker exposure to radiation and also Uh, Less secure containment of the waste. So we think it's appropriate. uh, For instance, the state of uh, New York right now is raising questions about the acquisition of the Indian Point nuclear power plant near New uh, New York City after it's shut down uh, by one of these companies. And I think those questions are legitimate and they need to be answered.
0: Uh, Edward Lyman, a lot of scientists, esteemed scientists, Jim Hansen and others have said climate is so serious that we need nuclear, that it is carbon-free energy. So as a scientific-based organization that's very concerned about climate, what's your position on nuclear's contribution to emission-free energy?
2: Well, uh, we don't uh, take a position one way or another, and it's clear nuclear power as a low-carbon electricity source can certainly play a role, but we don't believe that there's any inevitable pathway uh, for energy technology. And there are a lot of different factors that go into the uh, uh, evolution of the electricity system as you go toward uh, deep decarbonization. Um, Nuclear power has unique um, risks compared to other low-carbon technologies like wind or solar, and, and those have to be fully addressed. Uh, it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that nuclear power is as safe and secure as possible, because uh, if the world experienced another uh, Fukushima-like accident, uh, it could seriously damage uh, or further damage the credibility of the technology going forward. Um, Japan was one of the largest um, nuclear power Countries in the world, it was a big part of its energy future going forward, and after Fukushima, nearly every plant uh, shut down uh, for years, and that caused uh, a significant impact on their economy as well as on carbon emissions. So one has to be mindful of the need to ensure uh, that there are no more Fukushima's.
0: Peter Peterson, another outcome of the Fukushima disaster was Germany uh, announced to phase out all of its nuclear plants by 2022. That caused Germany to suddenly use a bunch of dirty coal, so it went uh, the, the wrong direction on climate uh, temporarily. Now there's calls to slow it down. What are the lessons of Germany's abrupt move away from nuclear after Fukushima?
1: Well, I, I think that you make an important point, and there's a study that recently came out from UC Berkeley that concludes that the nuclear plants that were shut down were replaced dominantly by coal and by imports of external electricity. And again, this comes back to the difficulties associated with managing intermittency uh, from sources like wind and solar, where we don't, we don't have effective storage technology that can scale at this point to, to manage those those problems. I think this goes back also to concerns about nuclear waste. Uh, To put that into context, in 2014, as I'd mentioned, nuclear was 10.5% of global electricity generation. The total amount of spent fuel that was generated worldwide that year would fit on Cal Memorial Football Stadium's field to a layer 1.3 meters deep. The equivalent amount of coal that we would have had to burn to make that same electricity, that same 10% would have been a billion tons, and that pile of coal would have been 230 kilometers high. Now, the thing that we're doing that's crazy is that we're actually taking carbon that is in safe, long-term, deep geologic isolation, and we're digging it up in enormous quantities and burning it to make heat. Yet we're worried about generating tiny, tiny volumes of spent fuel And placing it back into deep geologic isolation, we somehow think that that is hard when what we're doing with fossil fuel right now is absolutely crazy. And so we know that deep geologic isolation is scientifically and and technically feasible. What we don't have currently is the societal consensus, except in Sweden and Finland, uh, to deploy and put... The wastes into the correct places which is down into deep geologic formations where it will be safely isolated for long periods of time but that's not a reason for us not to use nuclear energy right now because fixing the problem of nuclear waste is something that future generations can grapple with and it's technically feasible for them the billions and billions of tons of carbon that we're releasing into the atmosphere now, there's no practical way for future generations to ever rectify that problem. And I think that shutting down nuclear plants instead of coal plants is just morally indefensible. It, when, when you look at what the consequences are and how hard it's going to be in the future to, to, to deal with what it is that we're doing today.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the pros and cons of nuclear power. That was Peer Peterson, professor of nuclear engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Coming up, life after half-life. What happens to workers when the lights go out at their power plant?
3: The nuclear field seemed to be going down the the wrong direction, Uh, the plants were starting to get old. It was just another indication to me that options need to be created. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today, everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the future of nuclear power. Earlier, we discussed the decommissioning of some aging nuclear power stations. But many plants, such as Vermont Yankee and Vernon, Vermont, are the main economic engine for their area. What's next for a community when a plant is shuttered and the jobs go away? Ken Faribault spent over four decades in the nuclear power industry. He started off as an engineer in the 1970s, just as many plants around the country were in the startup phase. He worked his way up the management chain as he moved from plant to plant, Brunswick to Shoreham, Washington State to Connecticut, and finally Vernon, Vermont, before quitting to start his own furniture business. Along the way, several of the plants where Faribaugh worked were shut down for various reasons, cost overruns, aging equipment, and increasing public and political opposition. He first felt the heat while working at the Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant on Long Island, which in the
3: 1980s was the hotbed of the anti-nuclear movement. It was the first time that I had experienced real uh, resistance in terms of nuclear. There were protests, picket lines, and, and what have you, and that was all very eye-opening to me because any time you talk to someone, it just became so emotional that rational thought uh went out the door. There were people that uh worked at the plant that had uh their houses set on fire by people pulling trash cans up and lighting you know combustible materials and pulling them up against the houses. So it wasn't something that you uh went around saying, I work at Shoreham, you know, because of the, the resistance there. That woke me up. And so from there on, all along the way, I was creating options for for myself. Uh, the nuclear field seemed to be going down the, the wrong direction. Uh, the plants were starting to get old. And so uh, when I moved here to, to Vermont Yankee, one of the things that I had done along the way was uh, I had gotten involved with uh, woodworking. So I wound up building a lot of furniture. Can you tell me about the moment that you
0: heard that Millstone was going to close and you would be out of a job at a nuclear power plant for the second time in your career because it was closing yeah. down?
3: Yeah, I, uh, you know, uh, those things are never like a a, a really abrupt thing. You kind of hear a little bit of talk here and a little bit of talk there. And uh, Millstone wasn't exactly uh you know, the, the residents in that area weren't, although they were not as uh, anti as uh, they were up at Shoreham, it was just another uh, indication to me that options need to be created, even though I had a good job. And then uh, I was working as a contractor there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they just, came back from a meeting one day and said, we have decided we're going to shut down the unit and mothball it and not start it back up. And uh, so that was number two plan. (laughs) But you had planned a
0: couple for your future by developing skills that were then going to um, help you going forward. So you went from Millstone to Vermont. Sounds like you planned for it pretty well.
3: Yeah. Vermont Yankee was probably right up there with Shoreham as far as the political environment and the public uh, environment relative to the plant. Uh, Nobody wanted it. Uh, You know, the governor of the state wanted it shut down, and the the politics just was not good. So I anticipated that at some point I was going to be out of a job again, and so we started in 2005 to create Vermont Wood Studios. And
0: how was that when you first said, okay, you walked out of Vermont Yankee, I believe it was after Vermont Yankee was closed, you actually left?
3: No, it was, uh, I was one of the last ones out the door.
0: One of the last ones out of the door (laughs) at Vermont Yankee Nuclear, and then you walk into a furniture business that's... Yeah. Just you, after working at huge corporations for all your career.
3: Well, back in 2005, as we began to prepare for the inevitable, from what I thought, we did a lot of research uh, in the in the furniture industry and woodworking, and what we found was a plethora of woodworking talent in the state of Vermont, and everyone had the same problem. They loved doing what they were doing. They either didn't know how or didn't have time uh, as far as marketing and selling. So they were all starving artists. And so we kind of put together a website. We designed a few pieces and said, let's see if we can sell these. And so in 2005, uh, I was still working at VY um, up until 2016. So I did these two jobs in parallel for a long time. And I worked endlessly, weekends, nights. And this finally looked like it was going to be viable. Um, So in 2012, uh, we actually uh, rebuilt this building that we're currently in, called Stonehurst.
0: When you walk around the town of Vernon now, how is the economy now compared to when the Yankee plant was operating?
3: Yeah, the economy is uh, pretty much non-existent here in, in Vernon at this point. I mean, there's a few businesses, but uh, you know, there used to be a wonderful uh, little uh, grocery store that doubled as a, a breakfast shop and a and a sandwich shop um that shut down. Um there was a a, a local bar that, you know, a lot of uh, business from the plant after work you know went over there and had a had a drink and uh socialized that shut down what about your other
0: colleagues that maybe didn't uh plan like you did or start a second job while they were working at Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant
3: yeah they they many of them had to move uh uproot their families and move and um you know it's not just vermont that was impacted this plant is located right on the connecticut river the border of new hampshire and and Vermont, and it's right in the lower part of the Vermont. So it's literally a couple miles from the Massachusetts border. So the uh, workers were pretty much evenly distributed between all three states.
0: And some of the people that you worked with, um, so they basically moved. Did they try to find other nuclear jobs? Did they start their own business like you did? What happens to people after a nuclear power plant shuts down? What's their second act?
3: Yeah, Most, most people... Uh, because of the degree of uh training and uh qualification uh required in the nuclear industry they they tend to stay with nuclear and they move because you know it is a pretty specialized field you're highly trained for long long years of training and uh you just the the money's good so uh it's very difficult to make that up uh doing construction or whatever else that um, people do. I know, there's, you know, one guy started a uh, home inspection uh, business, uh, but it's just him by himself, and he seems to be doing okay. But, uh, you know, many people had to get up and go. How much did the operator of the plant help people
0: transition into new careers, new jobs?
3: Um, They were really good. Uh, Entergy, uh, you know, they owned 10 plants at the time. Uh, They shut this one down. So they're scattered around uh, Fitzpatrick up in uh, New York. You have Grand Gulf um, down in Mississippi and uh, Waterford. So they had openings uh, at all these plants for anyone that wanted to go. You might not get the exact job that you want, but it was a job, nevertheless, in the nuclear industry. And there were were quite a few that retired uh, as well. You were part of kind
0: of the you know early generation getting into the nuclear industry as it was yeah. blossoming in the 70s. Yeah. How about people who are maybe 10 or 20 years behind you as they look out at plant closings, transitions, and really a shrinking industry in the United yeah. States?
3: Yeah. Uh, the general feeling out there is that it will have to make a comeback at some point in time. Uh, because these are large base load plants. I mean, you're talking about thousand megawatt, twelve hundred megawatt plants. Uh, sometimes three on a site. Um, that's just a lot of generation to replace. And in order for uh, the grid to be stable, you you need that base load power. You can't get it from a solar field. Generally, uh, it's just not not enough.
0: That was Ken Farabaugh, former employee with the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant, which was shut down in 2014. This is Climate One. Coming up, the future of nuclear, redesigning the reactor to fit the landscape.
4: Something that fits kind of in a mountain chalet type environment, to put what some say uh, it looks like. And that was where, you know, we drew inspiration from the A-frame. That's up next when Climate One continues. no then there
5: is. No mountain, then there is- there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then
0: there is This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about nuclear power, the good, the bad, and what's ahead. Two of the companies that are striving to redefine nuclear energy for the 21st century are NewScale Power and Okolo. NuScale is developing a small modular reactor designed to generate 60 megawatts of electricity in a small package that can be scaled up as needed. Ocalo has designed what they call a fission battery. It can use spent uranium fuel, converting nuclear waste to carbon-free energy, and doesn't need water for cooling. Their Aurora Energy Plant, to be built at the Idaho National Laboratory, resembles a mountain chalet. Newscale co-founder Jose Reyes and Ocalo CEO Jacob DeWitt join me now. DeWitt starts by explaining why Okolo wanted to make their reactor not only functional, but beautiful.
4: It's an important point for us from the beginning was we wanted to help change the paradigm about what people think about when they think about really their energy at the end of the day. Um, I think one thing that we've seen occur over time is, you know, industrial architecture and things that are fundamentally tied to provide the, I would say, essentials for life can be made to look, I think, fairly aesthetically pleasing, fairly beautiful. That was something we set out to do. Um, and yeah, we drew a lot of inspiration from where we're initially planning to build these, which is up in generally northern areas, um, to start with places that are fairly off grid, if you will. Um, where you think of cold, you think of maybe you know a heavy snowfall considerations, something that fits kind of in a mountain chalet type environment to quote what some say uh, it looks like. And that was where you know we drew inspiration from the A-frame. I, obviously, was functionality was really important for us, there's a lot of functionality that goes into that structure, but generally speaking, you know, what we're looking at is build these reactors to help solve some significant energy issues uh, for folks who face them right now. And we're looking at getting the first power out of these in the, the early 2020s. Um, generally speaking, I think if we can go as quickly as we hope we can, 2023 is, is a pretty reasonable target. Uh, so, somewhere around there is when we think the first one will go, and then we look at deploying. Um units after that, sort of in succession, to start generating more and more power to help the folks that that need it right now.
0: And you're looking to recycle uranium, so you're addressing kind of the nuclear waste issue. So tell us how you're going to address both the the nuclear waste as well as the the new source of power.
4: Yeah, well, that's one of I think the most exciting things about what you can do with nuclear is at the end of the day, every time you split a uh, uranium nucleus, you're generating about fifty million times more energy than when you combust the molecule of a uh, hydrocarbon molecule. So regardless of the reactor type or the technology, you're producing millions upon millions of times more energy than what we're used to. And for context, you know, millions of times larger is something that humans have a hard time, you know, I think, extrapolating and understanding. 50 million times is literally the difference from the average person's you know, fastest speed that they can run and the speed of light. So it gives you an idea of of this is a truly transformative paradigm in terms of energy generation and the impact it has on resources. Uh, And as a result, the very little waste that you do produce and the really exciting thing, which is with these advanced reactors, you can actually reuse a lot of that waste material as fuel.
0: Jose Reyes, you received uh, Department of Energy uh, support in 2018. You expect regulatory approval by end of 2020. Where is your new scale small modular reactor now?
5: Well, it's pretty exciting right now. We've uh, we've made great progress. We're Uh, in the final phases of uh, the design uh, certification process. Uh, So by September of this year, uh, the NRC is on track uh, to issue our final safety evaluation report, which is a huge milestone uh, for the company. So tell
0: us, you know, how big is it? Where is it going to be deployed? Who are the customers for this? Because we heard from Jacob that he's thinking about, uh, you know, small northern areas. Uh, Where's where's the market? Is this off-grid? Where do you think you're going to fill it into the power marketplace?
5: Yeah, well, right now we, we work with about 29 utilities. We meet with the utilities every six months. And so most of the utilities have similar needs. Uh, many have coal-fired plants that they'd like to retire. And so as a result, as they uh, as they retire these plants, they'd like to replace them with, uh, with something that's carbon-free. Uh, so this works very well with those plants, anywhere from you know, up to 570 to 700 megawatts electric. Uh, so this uh, works well with our 12-module plant. Uh, each of our modules produces about uh, uh, 60 megawatts electric. Uh, so um, uh, we, we, we know that there's a good a niche for us in replacement of coal fire plants, repurposing those sites. Uh, so we can use the trans- existing transmission lines. We could use the uh, existing water at those sites and replace those with, uh, with uh, you know, anywhere from 6 to 12 module new scale plant. So there's a lot of interest in that. Uh, we're also working with utilities that have a, quite a bit of renewable energy. Uh, so wind and solar, uh, so we've designed our plant to work well uh, in terms of load following uh, those different types of, of variable uh, uh, power generation. So we, we see a very large market for this.
0: What do you mean by load following? I mean, we hear about the idea that uh, you know wind blows at night, sun shines in the day, and there needs to be something to kind of match those two or firm up the grid. So how does nuclear fit into that in terms of what and what is load following?
5: Yeah, in the past, uh, the, the large nuclear plants uh, they do some load following. Uh, they can reduce power somewhere from 100% down to 80%. And, of course, they do that in France, and that helps balance the the, the grid. Uh, we've designed it to be much more flexible. So it's a relatively small nuclear core that allows us to increase and decrease power relatively quickly. Uh, some of the studies that we've done, uh, we're, we're focused on California, uh, looking at the, the, you know, the famous duck curve and how you would uh, you would meet that uh, that rapid demand that happens somewhere between 4 and 6 p.m. So we designed our plant to be able to respond to that type of of change uh very rapidly uh, to to balance uh, the grid. So it's it's a it's a big part of what we're doing with our design. Uh Jacob DeWitt, uh, let's talk
0: about cost. Uh we've seen from the large nuclear power plants that they've uh you know cost overruns have doubled to tens 20 billion dollars companies like Toshiba have gone bankrupt. So why should people believe that this kind of new nuclear technology will come in kind of on cost to be competitive?
4: Yeah, I think that's a great question and I think that's the driver for all of us in this game. At the end of the day, you know, I go back to what I said earlier, we have such an incredible um, advantage, if you will, in terms of the energy density of the fuel we use. Um, so if you look at the actual raw materials needed over the life cycle of a power plant of any type of technology um, to make you know, a single megawatt hour, let's just say, nuclear is dwarfed by everything else. So the costs should actually reflect that. And I would contend there's quite a bit of artificial costs that have piled up over time, largely kind of self-imposed by the industry to some extent from regulatory forces and functions. But at the end of the day, if you go to, I think, the fundamentals of the technology, design these systems that are um, take advantage, really frankly, of the physics on their side and drive simplification that way, you can really strip a lot of those, I would say, sort of, cost overheads or artificial costs, I should say, out and come up with a lot more economically oriented designs. You know, we're starting um, very small because we see a a niche market there that we're addressing, but that's just kind of where we start. Um, And this is just the first product that we intend to introduce there. And we can scale from there as we get the experience of, hey, actually designing, developing, building, operating these plants, then we can start to scale that forward into technologies that hit the economic need points that we see um, for being competitive. And generally speaking, I feel pretty confident that a wide variety Of advanced reactor types and technologies can actually hit the economic performance indicators to be competitive with everything out there. Again, when you have the kind of energy density advantages that we have on a pure technological basis, um, it's pretty, I'd say, you know. I would say motivating as well as, you know, enabling to be able to hit the cost targets that we're trying to hit. Um, so I think at the end of the day, you can easily see nuclear systems getting into delivering power um, at, you know, less than seven or five cents kilowatt hour, depending on the market, even less than that, depending on where they're at. Um, and capital costs that can be well under, you know, $3,000 kilowatt at the end of the day. Um, and a lot of that drives through, I think, design simplification and, and things that come from that. Um, including modular fabrication. Um, obviously, is doing a lot of work on that, too, that I think at the end of the day, you see opening up a different paradigm economically.
0: Jose Reyes, tell us about the role of government funding
5: and what you're trying to do to bring
0: a small nuclear reactor to market.
5: Yeah, so the uh, Department of Energy has been a great partner uh, with uh, with New Scale from, from the very beginning, actually. Uh, and over the years, uh, if you look at where we are today, uh, about two-thirds of our budget has come from private investors and about one third from the Department of Energy. And we're at about $900 million invested in what we're doing. Uh, now, in terms of scale, this is, we're looking at the first plant being a 720 megawatt electric reactor. So it's a different scale, and it's very complementary, I think, with what, uh, what's being done by Oakloop. Oak. How big is that?
0: Tell me, I, I, you know, I, I've been doing in the energy business for a decade. I can't, I don't know what a megawatt is. So what is 720 megawatts? What will that, how many casinos will that power?
5: <laughs> well, if you think about, each one of our modules is 60 megawatts, and that's, that's about 50,000 homes that it could, uh, it could uh, power so you get a sense of you know 12 times that so you know, about okay. 600,000 homes and okay. uh, that could be powered with uh, with one plant
0: Great. Um, and then uh, Jacob DeWitt, your reactor is a micro reactor and a non-water reactor. Uh, we're going to talk other places in this podcast about how water scarcity, water supply is a real concern for, for nuclear power plants, either rising sea levels or rising, rising waters or, or just the availability of, of water. So tell us about the, you know, how important it is to be, not be so dependent on water for cooling.
4: Yeah, well, for us, especially being very small, it's it's very important so we can open up the siting flexibility, which is kind of a key enabler for what we are trying to do for some of these markets that are off-grid and remote. Um, in general, you know, what we're doing is it's the reactor that's basically, you know, it, you kind of simply describe it as it's, you know, metal put together in the right configuration so that it makes heat. It's basically at the simplest version of what it is. Um, we use metallic fuel, encased in steel, and then we put those together in the right configuration. And then we use you know, liquid metals basically to transfer the heat from the fuel to a heat exchanger, where we then heat up basically a gas to then spin a turbine and make electricity. Uh, that then gives us the opportunity that, yeah, we don't need water in the core itself, but also because we're able to operate at slightly higher temperatures and because we're smaller, we can also just reject the unused heat that comes off the system that we can't convert into electricity into uh, just to the air, basically. So you're just able to, just like an air conditioning system, just have effectively air-cooled radiators that reject the heat off of it. And that's an important thing for where we're looking at deploying early on, especially because that's a lot of these markets, um, they're pretty isolated in some cases, or they may not have access to water reserves, or water may be a pretty precious commodity where they're at. Um, that said, you know, in some cases, water is readily abundant, readily available. Um, And in those cases, you know, if there is a reason to tie into the water systems, you can, but we don't have to. Um, The biggest reason might be just for process heating in Alaska, for example, one great way to reduce carbon emissions and also reduce the cost of living for folks in some of these areas is to also reduce their heating bills. So if you can make low temperature steam, uh, that's a great thing for them to have um, to be able to circulate. Right. But at the end of the day. Having an ability to decouple from having to site with those resources is, I think, an important characteristic and important enabler for very small reactor systems. And um, also an an enabler, generally speaking, for bringing the power to the folks that right now don't have it and bringing energy access to folks that may be more limited because of siting limitations that they have.
0: That was Jacob DeWitt, CEO of Okolo, Inc., and Jose Reyes, co-founder and chief technology officer for New Scale Power. Some countries look to nuclear power as a promising way to cut carbon emissions and advance technologically. But weak states with nuclear capabilities are grappling with instability brought on by climate change, mass migration, and the sudden onset of COVID-19. Could new nuclear technology also bring new risks? Christine Parthamore is CEO of the Council on Strategic Risks in Washington, D.C. She explains how nuclear power is related to national security.
6: Well, in a a wide number of ways, Um, for one, uh, we've used nuclear power in the history of the United States, uh, civil nuclear energy programs, um, as a way to conduct outreach and shape uh, international norms and standards regarding safety and security and nonproliferation. So from early on for the United States, our national security programs around the nuclear industry, when it was first emerging, centered on the United States providing nuclear power technologies and materials and knowledge uh, to states that wanted it for peaceful purposes. So uh, U.S. leadership broadly in international security affairs, but in the nuclear issues specifically, uh, was very tied to the provision of nuclear energy services um, from our country to others for a long time. In more recent years, that's changed a lot. So one of the issues that we look at on the security side is that um, one of the main Countries providing uh, at least contracts to develop new nuclear power plants with other countries looking to build out that capacity is Russia. Our current U.S. national security strategy uh, states very clearly that we're concerned about the the role of Russia going forward, its influence in key regions around the world, and what that means for U.S. security interests. Uh, China is newer to the nuclear suppliers market, but they're looking to make that a, a big part of their export economy as well. So uh, it's certainly in the U.S. national security interests to make sure that countries that have civil nuclear programs uh, for energy purposes or for research or that use uh, radiological materials uh, for medicinal purposes, that those activities are safe, the materials are secured and and accounted for, uh, and that we're involved with uh, how international norms and standards uh, evolve and stay strong to make sure that countries that are involved in nuclear technologies for peaceful purposes keep them peaceful and don't merge those programs into uh, hedging toward nuclear weapons programs.
0: So nuclear power has been part of uh, global geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy for a long time. Uh, Looking at the Paris Climate Accord, 10 countries listed nuclear in their plans to meet their Paris commitments. Some are existing nuclear powers, China, India, uh, Iran, Japan, others, Argentina. And then there's another group of companies, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. So when you look at more nuclear in a climate-destabilized future, how do those two things come together? Nuclear can be part of the solution, but there also can be risks.
6: Mm, Certainly. Uh, One of the risks that I would add in is that for countries that are talking about expanding their use of nuclear energy for climate change mitigation purposes and to develop low-carbon economies, that doesn't mean that some of their neighbors might not trust that those activities are fully peaceful. So that's another concern that we have is, some countries, if you look at the Saudi Arabia-Iran dynamics, for example, some countries may be worried that those Paris commitments to more nuclear energy are more of a what they call climate washing their nuclear programs. So that's another concern. Uh, but we have looked into, for the past few years, the, the concern that climate change and its effects, when coupled with other socioeconomic and political trends, will cause countries that possess either nuclear weapons or nuclear energy or both, to become destabilized uh, in all or parts of their countries. That's a trend that we're already seeing as climate and other pressures mount uh, in in different countries around the world. If you add into the mix the need to control nuclear materials uh, and keep a nuclear system safe and secure, make sure that no one is uh, accessing um, nuclear materials that shouldn't have access to them, for example, making sure that the, the facilities and plants are safe, and that they're well secured, things like that, that, that take a really strong governance system. It's a, an issue set that we need to be very aware of. One of the ways that we've been addressing this is bringing together people from different disciplines. So nuclear experts with climate experts and making sure they're talking to each other.
0: Most nuclear power plants around the world are water-cooled. Therefore, they're located on rivers, lakes, and oceans. Uh, we know that, that water supply, water volatility, droughts and floods, uh, there's a lot of water risk. So, So talk about water risk in a climate world and how that can affect the stability of nuclear power plants.
6: Sure. So at the extreme case, we have evidence of this with the unfortunate tragedy of the triple disasters that Japan experienced Including the tsunami that struck the F- Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants there, that country has been struggling for more than nine years now uh, to handle that. Uh, there was a large inundation of water coupled with many other different factors sort of going exactly wrong. but it's a good case where the Japanese were very prepared for earthquakes and tsunamis, and they had a, a actually pretty aggressive standard for protecting their power plants on coastal areas from these disasters. but this disaster the tsunami was just so much worse um, than even their most aggressive planning standards. And I think that's that shows the mindset that we have to adapt in a world of climate change. And you see what happened with the reactors there. There's still meltdowns occurring. Um, they're still years later trying to adequately assess the status of the melted down fuel and where the fuel resides. Uh, and then there's water challenges that continue today. So as they have had to continually pump water through, the affected nuclear reactors uh, in order to prevent further chain reactions from occurring and keep them cooler, they have a huge problem with what to do with all that water. So they're in a a horrible position of having to decide whether to flush some of this water uh, that's passed through the affected reactors back into the ocean or whether they have to keep storing it on land uh, and trying to Mm. treat it over time. So again, we know that climate change is upon us. We know how it's going to go. Uh, There are great assessments of flooding and sea level rise out there Um, There's no reason that we shouldn't all take a responsibility, especially in critical industries like the nuclear sector, uh, where things can go very wrong if they do go wrong, and taking those extra layers of precaution.
0: We've talked earlier in this radio show and podcast with new te- about new technologies that don't use water, so they're uh, separated from that that water risk. And that water risk is not just Japan nine years ago. There's been examples in New Jersey and Nebraska in this country where the re- rising Missouri River, as well as Superstorm Sandy, uh, impacted nuclear power plants. Is the industry ready for uh, these kinds of, of climate risks around the world?
6: So I would say no. Um In general, no. Some countries uh, have a lot of assistance on this. Um, And again, one of the challenges is uh, if we're addressing reducing these risks from a status of what we know to be the risk today versus what we know the climate risks are that are coming down the pike during the lifetimes of these plants, we need to be aggressively planning now for those changing environmental conditions Uh, as well as security conditions that are going to emerge around this. So the threat landscape is not static, just like the climate landscape that we're dealing with is not static either. So we need to become more sophisticated about not just, again, planning for the threats that we know are are present um, and are normally accounted for in the regulatory system and the licensing systems that exist in countries like ours and others, but we should be helping other countries like this to use the forecasting tools that we have available to say this is what our climate future and this is what our security future sort of looks like and let's plan to that standard.
0: You've been listening to Climate One and a discussion about the role of nuclear power in a hot and destabilized world. That was Christine Parthermore, CEO of the Council on Strategic Risks. In the first part of the program, we spoke with Pear Peterson, professor of nuclear engineering at the University of California at Berkeley and Edward Lyman of the Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists. My other guests were Ken Farabaugh, formerly with the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant, Jacob DeWitt, CEO of Okolo, Inc., and Jose Reyes, co-founder and chief technology officer for New Scale Power. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. I really appreciate it. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the Strategy and Content Manager. Steve Fox is Director of Advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.